Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Citizen Dame podcast, a group of four ladies who were slowly becoming demoralized with Hollywood. But yeah, we keep talking about it. So as always, I am one of uh, the quintuple of people, uh, Kristen Lopez, here this week with Kimberly Pierce. Hello. And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. Said her name way too fast. Never do that again. The lovely Karen Peterson is not here this week, um, probably because I was not here the last two weeks. Because technically, we got to hang out. Uh, Karen and I got to go to Halloween Horror Nights when I was down in LA. She heard me scream like a little girl. It was a lot of fun. So we miss her, but she will be back hopefully on the next episode. So we have quite a bit of mess and hopefully some good stuff to talk about. Let's get the bad out of the way. We still have more Harvey Weinstein fallout this week. Uh, We're going to hit everything relatively briefly because I don't know about you two, but I'm so sick of hearing this man's name. It's exhausting. (laughs) Terrible. Yeah, it's the worst. So, of course, there's a bit more fallout from this. Uh, Quentin Tarantino came out and pretty much said that he knew everything that was going on. He had heard rumors He had heard from the actresses themselves, one of whom he was dating at the time, Mira Sorvino, and that he just kind of equated it to, you know, in in Mira Sorvino's case, he, he hoped that because he was dating her that this would stop, and it didn't. He actually worked with Rose McGowan and knew that there had been a settlement, and he pretty much said he wishes he could go back and change everything. He knows that anything he says at this point is going to sound like an excuse, There's been a lot of back and forth from people on the internet about this. Where do we all fall? Because I, I took to, I gravitated towards the line where he says, anything I say at this point is just going to sound like an excuse. He knows that there is absolutely nothing he can say that is going to be positive. But I did appreciate his weird logic because I've heard that logic before. The concept that he assumed that by dating one of these women, that essentially he would have been able to protect her because many men believe that, you know, okay, well, he just really likes you. And if I like you, then essentially territorial aspects being what they are. In terms of just deconstructing the falsehoods about, you know, how men interpret these things was just fascinating to see because he hits all the marks and pretty much shows that if a person is an abuser, there is not a damn thing in the world that you're going to be able to do, whether you're a male or a female. But but where do we feel about his... It's not really... An, it's an apology, but it's also more of a let me deconstruct my thinking thing. Where do we all fall on Tarantino? I, I personally have very mixed feelings. When I read his statement, I uh, my, my first and my initial reaction was oh, you knew about it and you didn't do anything. Like, you know, like Ben Affleck, like all of these other people that undoubtedly knew about it and and didn't take any sort of steps to to out him or anything like that. At the same time, yeah, I mean, I think Tarantino is one of the few people who's actually owned the fact that he knew, hasn't really tried to make excuses about it and said, like, I made a mistake, which has its own, that's a good thing. At the same time, I feel like we're we're more we're than more willing to let him off the hook of being like, oh, you were screwing one of the women that that Weinstein harassed, and you were getting a lot of good stuff out of Weinstein, so you did nothing. Good for you. Yeah. Hurrah. 
there's there's a there's a real double-edged sword because he is pretty much the only actor who is or director who has come forward in the wake of this that hasn't tried to rationalize it in terms of I find this to be deplorable. You know, you look at Matt Damon or Ben Affleck or George Clooney's mm-hmm. statements. You know, I find this appalling. I totally didn't know. You know, I had heard stories. Tarantino, I think, is the only person that says, I heard the stories. Somebody fucking told me. And I still did nothing. Like, you can actually hear his brain being like, what the hell did I do? You know? I, I mean, I have to applaud that. But at the same time, he was complicit. And he ignored it. And he could have ended this a lot earlier had had he maybe said something, considering Tarantino's clout was about on par with wine scenes for a long time and yeah and it's ultimately complicit so he he profited from it he he profited right. from his his silence he profited from turning a blind eye to it and i i do think that there was you know there's probably a little bit of a disconnect there where he was like i'm just gonna kind of ignore this or write it off and because i'm getting a lot of stuff out of it i don't think it was it doesn't seem like it was deliberately cruel. It wasn't being deliberately like, I know about this, but I'm just going to ignore it for my own benefit. But more of a cognitive dissonance. I don't know. To to not, to be like, this is happening, but I'm going to pretend that it's not and act like I don't know about it in my own mind. I don't know. That was that was the impression that I got from him. I, I was still, you guys are all bringing up great points. I was still in really the first stage of, I honestly, I wasn't surprised coming from you know i hate to say it somebody like tarantino i was more like oh shocking he knew and didn't say anything it's goes along with exactly what the rest of hollywood was doing during the entire time we've shown that people you know these statements have shown that people knew people had ideas but ultimately that fear to step forward because of the clout power speaks and weinstein rode that power for so long and that's why this is still talking about it. and we're at what 50 women now yeah i think we're yeah. over 50 women well the next person that came out was lupita nyong'o who came out over uh the last couple of days and had a very similar story she wrote a, a fantastic piece um i want to say was it for the new york times yeah i think so yes that sounds right um talking about how she had had several encounters with him over over the years both before she was famous and after she had won the Oscar um, for 12 Years a Slave. There's some insane stuff that is revealed, like he told her he wanted to put her in a role that was essentially a role in Southpaw, I think it was, um, that was completely pointless for the actress involved and it would have been for her. But this is the only allegation that he has publicly refuted. The other ones, he's, he's kind of been oblique, but he specifically referred to her and said, that's not how I remember it. And this has led a lot of women, especially women of color, to bring up the fact that when white women accuse a male, you know, there's a lot of support. And then when women of color, uh, specifically black women, accuse somebody, you know, the, there's not this, this rush of support. Um, especially now with with Weinstein specifically picking her out as the one that, oh, he's not going to lay claim to that. The other ones, uh, maybe, but definitely not this one. It goes back to a lot of just racist stereotypes and further proving that he is a disgusting garbage person. What do we all think about one more, especially someone like Lupita Nyong'o, who is doing such amazing work in 
again, if you have not seen Queen of Cotway, go watch it and cry. Go watch it with your mom. She's so great, and this this one hurt me because I, I love her so much. Uh, well, she, I, I think what, someone pointed out a really interesting thing about her is that she is one of those actresses who, at the point when this actually happened, she really didn't need Weinstein. Right. And she still, she never has needed Weinstein. So he couldn't, in the gross and disgusting way that he has, he couldn't, quote, offer her the same things that he could offer some of the other women who have accused him of harassment and, and even of rape. And I think that, you know, and yes, there is definitely a racial component to this. There's no doubt about that. The fact that this is the one allocation that he's refuting, I, I, I don't know how else you can interpret that. Um, but I do think that's very interesting. I think even in her, her uh, op-ed piece, she says, you know, like within, she's, she like walks, walks out of the room and then, is, and then is like, well, after I won my Academy Award, you know? So it's, it's a very nice piece of shade against Weinstein, but in the sense that she really didn't need him. She didn't need the, the support that he could have possibly offered her if she accepted his advances or anything like that. She's also, I found it very interesting that her experience there there's this whole thing where she was talking about he wanted it's disgusting he wanted to give her a massage and she responded with well i'll give you a massage and her reasoning behind that was that she actually gets to put herself in a position of power over him so she buys herself time and i found that a very interesting kind of understanding of the situation and her own experience of it that she was trying even at that point rather than like running from the room she was like i'm gonna try to understand what's happening and at least give myself some power in this situation well she also mentioned that you know that's the nature of acting you know she's like it's it's hard not to fall into that because it's such an intimate part of our job that we are in close proximity with each other as actors and we're in close proximity with the director and it, it makes you really think about how much just the nature of filmmaking and what we see on screen contributes yeah. to this. That's fascinating insight. I hadn't even thought of it that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at, you you hear about, oh, sex scenes are really uncomfortable for, for actors, and, and they, of course they are. But at the same time, is the nature of seeing them, you know, causing poor actors to have to mitigate harassment, you know, that's that's a terrifying prospect. But let's move on to another, we're gonna, we're gonna bring up really briefly, um, this came out within the last 24 hours, but director James Toback has been accused, it started on Twitter, and then the LA Times, I guess, started interviewing people, there's been 38 women, 31 went on record to say that he uh, was accused of, of sexual harassment um, and assault in some instances. If you don't know who James Toback is, you don't really need to. Um, the man's kind of petered out as a director. Um, he's best known for stuff like The Pickup Artist from 1987, which if you've seen that movie, it is really disturbing to watch. And I wanna say that Molly Ringwald had come out when that movie came out and said that she had been uncomfortable. He also did um, Two Girls and a Guy, which is another just, Again, his movies are really misogynist to begin with. Um, he also did the Mike Tyson documentary, and I want to say won an Academy Award or was nominated for writing the Bugsy Siegel movie um, starring Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. So again, his time has kind of passed, but supposedly, once again, another long-standing series of rumors. Everybody had, had vaguely heard about this. There have been no high-profile actresses that have talked about this, um, but once again, another director 
history of of systemic abuse it keeps it keeps going just be good people why can't we just be a good <laughs> exactly. decent human being why can- <laughs> exactly <laughs> well, um, I, well, I, well i do want to say oh, just really, really quickly one thing that i i didn't know that this had come out originally on twitter and i think that it's very interesting that so much of this discussion about weinstein about going back to to, to Knowles and to Faraji, who feel like such small potatoes now. But going back to all of that, it's all been talked about on Twitter. It's all been sort of discussed and elaborated on within social media. You know, the whole, the Me Too campaign, that all of these actress, both actresses, writers, women who are, quote, nobody, all the way up to women who are somebody actually talking about their experiences with sexual assault and all of that. Um, that this is being done on Twitter. And there's a lot, there's been a lot of discussion of like, oh, Twitter is just this echo chamber. Twitter is just this place where, you know, Twitter is, there's no place for nuance. It's not really important. It is quite obviously incredibly important. And in, in giving equal voice in some ways to the people that are being, that have been attacked and that have been assaulted and that have been harassed. And not, most people would not know about this stuff if it wasn't for social media. So, you know, we've got to got to give props to Twitter for that and and to the campaigns that have been run on Twitter uh, and the conversations. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Switching to some positive news. Hopefully this came out from The Hollywood Reporter a couple days ago. But one of the more powerful female uh, CEOs of a company, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, the producer of the Star Wars films and the president of Lucasfilm, has pretty much said she said this at an l women in hollywood celebration that lucasfilm is a zero tolerance company she praised all the women that accused harvey weinstein and she said that predators must come to feel they can't count on power or wealth or fame to shield them and she is asking that uh, zero tolerance policies for abusive behavior and, quote, an unimpeachable system in which victims of abuse can report what's happened to them with a confident expectation that action will be taken. So, I love, Kathleen Kennedy gets a lot of flack, again on Twitter, mostly by fanboys who say that she's ruining the Star Wars series, but um, she is one of the more, probably one of the most powerful female producers in Hollywood's history, and I'm all for her wanting to um, say that Hollywood needs to wake up and employ some uh, zero tolerance for these guys. I loved that she said that. I, I stumbled on that article, and it was like, go, Kathleen. Fine. You know, it's she's saying what needs to be said, and I hope we, you know, I hope Hollywood takes those ideas and runs with it and, you know, doesn't let this get pushed under the rug. And it, it is good to see a woman in power actually, you know, standing up for this, not kind of, not following along with uh, what I think a lot of us fear about what will happen to Hollywood after this, which is that it all gets kind of, it tapers off and it all gets swept under the rug again and they go about business as usual. It's good to see that and it's good to see a, a very powerful female producer taking the lead in all of that. Well, let's, hopefully we won't have any more garbage people to talk about, because we really don't like to. (laughs) Um, So we're going to move on to uh, one of the earliest uh, awards groups to announce their nominations. The Gotham Awards came out uh, earlier this week. Most people don't really know what the Gotham Awards is, or necessarily what they're nominating. Um, They are kind of an, an intriguing grab bag of it's produced by the Independent Filmmaker Project, and they do a lot of good in terms of nominating smaller independent features. Um, but this year, 
they have quite the slate of strong films out. Um, Best Feature nominations were Call Me By Your Name, The Florida Project, Get Out, Good Time, and I, Tanya. The Bingham Ray Breakthrough Director Award, which I was happy to see had uh, two women in it, Maggie Betts for Novitiate and Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, as well as Jordan Peele for Get Out. Koganata for Columbus and Joshua Z. Weinstein, hopefully no relation, um, for Menashe. Best screenplay was for The Big Sick, Brad Status, Call Me By Your Name, Columbus, Get Out, and Lady Bird. Best actor was Willem Dafoe in The Florida Project, James Franco as Tommy Wiseau in The Disaster Artist, Daniel Kalua in Get Out, Robert Pattinson in Good Time, Adam Sandler in The Meyerowitz Stories, and Harry Dean Stanton posthumously for Lucky. Best Actress nominations are Melanie Linsky in I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, Haley Lou Richardson in Columbus, Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, Shersha Ronan for Lady Bird, and Lois Smith for Marjorie Prime. And Breakthrough Actor went to, or nominations are for Mary J. Blige in Mudbound, Timothy Chalamet in Call Me By Your Name, Harris Dickinson in Beach Rats, Kelvin Harrison Jr. in It Comes at Night, and Brooklyn Prince in The Florida Project. There's a bunch of other nominations. You can go find them on Variety. They're also going to present, I guess, tribute awards to Nicole Kidman, Dustin Hoffman, Sofia Coppola, Jason Blum, cinematographer Ed Latchman, and Al Gore. This is an interesting list of, of films. All of these are universally, if, in terms of critics, well-reviewed. It's kind of like... I think what many people would hope the Oscars would look like, but probably won't. It's nice to see Get Out in there having survived kind of the summer and keeping its name in the running. Yeah, we have to remember that Get Out came came mm-hmm. to theaters in, what, February, March? And it's still, I mean, they were campaigning early for this. I think they were doing critic screenings um, and, and awards screenings for this over the summertime. So... I would love a world where where Get Out is uh, nominated at the Oscars because it would be fantastic. Some of these were not surprising. The love for Call Me By Your Name, I think, is just going to keep going. I still don't feel confident saying that it's a front runner for any big awards, but and Sean Baker's The Florida Project, I haven't seen it, but I'm excited to because I loved Tangerine. Um, and again, I Tanya. If somebody had told me a couple years ago that a Tanya Harding movie was going to get awards consideration. I wouldn't have believed you, but I would have been so happy. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you guys about um, uh, stuff like Get Out, which is awesome to see. Like, I, it would be amazing if if it got some Oscar nominations. I would love to see that. All of the others, like you say, seem to be pretty pretty much in keeping. They're all kind of outside of the Hollywood mainstream. These are not, you know, big, big films, but they also do have quite a few stars and things like that. I'm really interested to see I, Tanya. I am as well. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think any of us have. But, you know, you're right. That most audiences, like mass audiences that go to the movies on a Sunday, probably don't know a lot of these with the exception of maybe Get Out. But if you're an Oscar person, you know, and you follow the, the awards, these will not seem that revel- revelatory because they are getting such such a huge following critically um and it's they have have kind of built that up i mean call me by your name came out at south by southwest at the beginning of this year it's just kept building it's played at practically every film festival so and yet i still haven't seen it yet so yeah if you're a, an oscar prognosticator you're gonna you're gonna already know you're these. Ca- we're kind of sitting here going this oh, is probably the most call me by your name yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah, these are probably the most mainstream independent choices. But we will know what wins on November 27th when the Gotham Awards are announced. So that will be, I think, the first major award show to bring us into the season. But speaking of Call Me By Your Name and other award stuff, AFI, AFI Fest is happening in about two weeks. Fingers crossed I will be there. Well, I'm going to be there. The question is, like, how poor will I be when I come back? But I will be there. And they announced three of their gala screenings. Um, These are not public festival screenings. These are special screenings that essentially you have to know somebody who knows somebody to get in. And I'm trying to know somebody who knows somebody to try to get in. But they announced three of their gala screenings. Uh, Call Me By Your Name, not surprising. Scott Cooper's Hostels, starring Christian Bale, and The Disaster Artist. So these three are very intriguing in terms of two are being talked about. One of them is, I think, all but being ignored. What do we think of their awards chances? Let's start with The Outlier, which is Hostels. This is the Scott Cooper movie uh, that stars Christian Bale. It's kind of one of those slow period pieces. I will say that I don't like Scott Cooper as a director. I find all his movies to be very boring. So it's not surprising. This one took the slowest, I think, to get distribution. I don't see it having an awards chance, but it's getting a pretty big push from its studio, especially to get a gala at AFI. Where do we see this uh, falling, if anywhere? I've heard the film exists. I was, you know, I'm aware of it, and that's mostly, I will freely admit to being a Christian Bale fan back since Newsies days. So I... I will typically yeah. you know, follow his work, and I don't, it, looking at it, I mean, having Christian Bale in it, having Ben Foster in it, who I know I particularly like, and I'm just waiting for him to get, you know, the Oscar love I think he deserves, it's yeah. in, it is in it intrigues me but it's definitely the lowest profile it could definitely appear for you know bale usually gets a nomination for a lot of what he does and ben foster's getting close too so it could definitely merit in those categories maybe not for the big you know the big categories yeah this also has uh timothy chalamet who's, who is kind of the breakout star Plot. Who's in everything. Plot. He's in everything. I've seen this kid in like... He's in everything. He's in everything. He's also yeah. Lady Bird, really? too. I um, heard that. Plot, plot in a very thin nutshell for Hostels. Um, it's set in 1892 and follows a legendary army captain played by Christian Bale who reluctantly agrees to escort a Cheyenne chief and his family through dangerous territory. We're really liking Native Americans in cinema right now. <laughs> Between this and Wind River. So... I find Scott Cooper boring. I, I don't know if everybody else finds him boring, but I find him to be incredibly dull and lifeless. And this movie's getting, you know, good critical reviews, but I don't know if that's necessarily going to turn into anything. Keep in mind, I mean, Crazy Heart, which was his other movie, got, yeah, got, got Jeff love, Bridges yeah. the Oscar. But then, Jeff, true, yeah. but then Jeff Bridges had earned that over, you know, so many, so many years of being... This, this solid character actor. But since then, Out of the Furnace didn't really do anything. God, that movie's boring. Black Mass, we all thought Johnny Depp was going to get an Oscar for that. And Black Mass, again, I'm going to say it, that movie's awful. So I, I don't see Hostels doing anything, but would it surprise me if Christian Bale got some love? No, because again, Christian Bale has cultivated a lot of, of strong performances. If he won for this, it would be 
pointless because he should have won for other and things. Hollywood should have won for American Psycho. I'm not gonna... It doesn't necessarily, you know, matter. With the yeah, movie this year they've shown that it's. Yeah, we reward you for when you're due, not for necessarily whether you think we think you're good in the film. I, know, I was just gonna say I have had I've heard almost nothing about Hostels except that it is boring. Like that, I keep on hearing that. <laughs> I keep on going like, oh, that that seems like a really boring film. Just like, okay, I believe that. Yeah, and I I will say not a Christian Bale fan. I've never been a Christian Bale fan. I hate him in everything. <laughs> and so this is like the lowest possible film. Just like there's no way I will see this unless someone makes me. See, this has got, it's definitely gotten over because the only reason I've been hearing him talked about lately, who is he playing that he's gaining all the weight for? That is escaping me. Is he? Dick, Dick Cheney. Cheney. Dick right. Cheney. Yeah. Which, ugh, don't even get me started on how unnecessary I That's think that movie is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, him and Amy Adams reunited um, post-American yeah, Hustle. Yeah. Hopefully it's better than that movie. Yeah. But the next movie uh, that I... We got to talk about The Disaster Artist. Yeah. I would love a world that exists where a movie about Tommy Wiseau <laughs> gets nominated for an Oscar. Um, in case you don't know, uh, The Disaster Artist is the biopic about the making of Tommy Wiseau's 2003 movie The Room. Off consider the worst movie ever made, but it's not. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's camera's placement's really good. Um, it's filmed in focus. So this is getting a lot of love. When it premiered, I, I know Can isn't right, but it premiered one of the earlier festivals. A lot of people compared it to Tim Burton's Ed Wood mm-hmm. in terms of showing this crazy director who thought very highly of himself making this horrific masterpiece now which did win uh, an academy award two of them for makeup and martin landau in a supporting role so i mean it's a valid comparison to make between the movies obviously in terms of of content and i mean franco we love colorful weird characters the academy gravitates towards that so would it surprise me if Franco saw no. a nomination? No. I would just love it if he got Tommy Wiseau to give the speech. Um, I think that would be fantastic. But, I mean, unless any of the other actors, I mean, I, Dave Franco is in this as well, Seth Rogen. I don't see this getting a huge amount of, like, critical acclaim in terms of from, because we have to keep in mind, the Academy is still predominantly older True. white men. And I don't think they're going to gravitate towards this. So I, I see this as Franco or bust, possibly screenplay for adapted, but uh, Franco or bust. What do we, what do you two think? I will say that Hollywood also likes movies about itself. Yeah. They do. That's true. So do you think, do you think that translates to a best picture nomination? Um, I think it's peaking at the right time. I feel like I, I'm not there enough to say dead set, but I think there's definite potential there. I would say de- um, looking at definite potential for Franco, like you said, definite potential mm-hmm. for screenplay. Um, I think it's a contender whether or not it'll make it the entire way. I am, I'm not prepared to say that yet, but it feels like it's peaking at a good time. Yeah, and it's getting a lot of, it is getting a lot of very good response. A lot of people seem to be very uh, interested in it. And even even those people that I know who have never seen The Room have actually heard, at least heard of The Disaster Artist and been like, you know what, what this is about? So yeah, I, I wouldn't, I don't doubt that Franco will probably get a nomination. Whether or not that translates to anything more for it is a question. Um, I do have to say that when, when this initially began talk began being talked about and I saw the trailers I felt like 
it was making fun of Wiseau, and that bothered me because it seems like it was part of part of the part of the beauty of Ed Wood and part of the power of Ed Wood was that it it was being it was a it was a director like Tim Burton who really did admire Wood's love of cinema. And even though he is the worst director ever, he really believed in the work that he was doing. He really adored making movies, even though they were terrible movies. And with Wiseau, the, the way that it's the way that it was being treated, at least in the trailers, was almost like, oh, he's a buffoon. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people did say that um, the disaster artist did, I, I mean, it's a really niche movie. You know, you have to know the room. You have to know Tommy Wiseau. And I'm interested to see how it'll play with an audience of people that don't know those things. Because, you know, like my my mom, for instance, has never seen The Room. She had no idea what I was talking about, but she thought the trailer seemed funny. So I'm hoping that that means, you know, mass audiences will enjoy it. I don't know whether mass audiences are going to enjoy it. That's that's the thing, because it is it is so based in cult movies. And that's what The Room is. And now The Room is a very big cult movie in its own way. You know, it's become, it's a favorite of midnight screenings, you know, all of that stuff. But so, I yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, am, I continue to be, as I was, as I was saying, I, I continue to be a little uncomfortable with what I'm getting. And again, I haven't seen the film, so I'm just, this is just based upon my viewing of the trailers. What I'm getting from the trailers is that they are making fun of Oizo. They're making fun of, and that's, that's, there's just something very nasty about that. There's something very nasty about people like James Franco and Seth Rogen making a movie about what an idiot this director of this movie is. And I haven't, has Wiseau came out and said anything about it? I know I haven't seen anything. I'm just not sure if I missed it. I know Wiseau has come to screenings and he's made speeches. I yeah. think he's okay with it. Mm-hmm. I think this could be, I think it's going to be an interesting experiment. I think in certain circles, this could do very well. I think, you know, potentially, you know, the circles we're in, this, you know, this potential circles of people yeah. who listen to this podcast will, my, my parents certainly don't know the room. A lot of people that I work with won't know the room. This won't have huge box office presence by any stretch. Will it a more filmy audience could potentially really enjoy more more filmy and I'll say more kind of pop culture-y audience could potentially very much enjoy it well and the last movie that is getting a gala screening is Call Me By Your Name Uh, this is the Luca Guadagnino uh, adaptation of the book written by Andre Asiman which if uh, you have read the book you know it's um, an acquired taste that tells the story of two uh, young men in the 1980s in Italy who have this supposedly beautifully filmed romance. I have not seen the movie, but I've heard from everybody who's seen it, including Lauren, who has seen it, that it's (laughs) awesome. This movie has gotten nothing but praise since it, it premiered at South by Southwest back at the beginning of the year. I know people that have seen it three, four, five times. And I hate them so much. I've seen clips. I've read the audiobook, which, by the way, if you are listening to the Call Me By Your Name audiobook read by Army Hammer, do not operate a car or do anything because you will get in trouble. It's great. So 
this movie is pretty much everybody considers it their own personal front runner for like all the awards um but realistically where do we think we'll see nominations for this i'm gonna be crazy and say picture probably actor probably supporting actor and script probably cinematography as well yeah those are the big heavy hitters that i think it'll get what do, what about you two i'm biased so um i would def i will be stunned if it doesn't get picture that's just with the legs the movie has had um i think it's will it will it win who knows but i think it should definitely get a nomination looking at that trailer i would say cinematography definitely best supporting chalamet seems like he's getting a lot of good buzz out of it so i'm would expect that and the little fangirl in me you know would love to see army hammer that i'm not as a hundred percent on but i will see it next week so hopefully we'll have a better idea (sighs) yeah i i agree i think that um I think it's definitely going to get Best Picture. Uh, whether it wins is an open question, but I didn't expect Moonlight to win last year, even though it, it was definitely the most deserving film, and it did. So neither did the presenters. One never knows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so one never knows with that with that kind of thing. Hollywood can be unpredictable at that level. It, it's interesting, though. I I'm it'll be if if they do get Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, it'll be interesting to see who gets what for what. Because really, although Army Hammer is definitely the bigger name in America than Chalamet, Chalamet is the is playing the lead character. This is his story. Mm-hmm. So it would be I wouldn't be surprised to see like Chalamet get Best Supporting Actor and, and and Hammer get nominated for Best Actor. But that's not the way that it should be. It really should be if the, if anyone's going to be nominated, they should either both be nominated for Best Actor, which I think would be surprising, or or Hammer should get. Uh, a supporting actor and Chalamet should get best yeah. actor. I would love to see any of it. They all deserve Oscars. There's a lot of talk about how that would work because yeah, you, I mean Chalamet and, and Hammer, they're the two ostensibly, I mean, it's Chalamet's story, but they're, from what I've been told, they're about equal in terms of screen time. So I mean, if you have them both go lead there's always the possibility that they'll split the vote and it'll go That's to what- a completely random third party but then you also have in supporting what have they said um michael michael stahlberg who who everybody said is really good and that's definitely a supporting performance so would we see the same thing in supporting where if they put two of them in supporting it splits the vote and it goes to another third party i think they'll just i I, i'm tempted to say that they would have to decide who they want to campaign or i don't know it'd be yeah. I mean, you have three very strong performances based on reviews. For the sake of the movie, especially the two leads, I would hope that the film wouldn't have them comp- campaigning for the same because I could definitely see them, you know, splitting the vote. And, you know, if, if they're both going for best actor, split the vote and Gary Oldman's Winston Churchill gets it or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't be surprising. But that I, I think that that's one of the, the problems with a film that, ha- that does have a, a lot of strengths. Um, there isn't a clear lead star. There's not a big star who is the lead actor in this movie. It isn't a character performance like Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. So you've got at least three actors, all of whom deserve some kind of a nomination. But yeah, you want to? I want to actually see one of them win it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. agreed. Yeah, I want. I want just an incredibly amazing Oscar year that involves looking at at them in dapper suits. So I'm prepped. Um, AFI Fest, in case you're curious, is November, I want to say, 9th through 16th. 
other things that are gonna happen uh they're also the closing night film is all the money in the world the ridley scott movie about j paul getty with michelle williams and mark Wahlberg. ridley scott he, he makes some good ones and then he makes garbage so i'm not sad that i'm gonna miss that well that one was that i missed the conversation on that one because i just learned about it there's been very little week. conversation on that one trailer yeah i i mean I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it. Ridley Scott is one of those directors, I think, who's really kind of shot himself in the foot by having... He puts out so many movies, and then for every, like, good one, there's, like, three or four that just are sucky. So I don't see a lot of... a lot Unless people really love it, I don't see it getting much appreciation. But yeah, that's Closing Night Film at AFI. Speaking about directors who have more clout than Ridley Scott, um, one of the more mysterious projects that's not The Post is the new P.T. Anderson movie starring Daniel Day-Lewis. This is the film that supposedly inspired Daniel Day-Lewis to quit acting and become a fashion designer. Yeah, (laughs) that wouldn't be surprising because it's Daniel Daniel Day-Lewis, but it was, uh, everybody said it was called Phantom Thread, and then we said no, it wasn't, and then, oh yeah, it is called Phantom Thread, but we actually have a synopsis an actual synopsis for this movie. This is courtesy of Collider. Um, But it says, set in the glamour of 1950s post-war London, renowned dressmaker Reynolds Woodcock, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, ha ha ha, his name is funny, and his sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville, are at the center of British fashion, dressing royalty, movie stars, heiresses, socialites, debutantes, and dames, with the distinct eye of the house of Woodcock. Seriously, is this parody? I'm just curious. Um, Women come and go through his life, providing the confirmed bachelor with inspiration and companionship until he comes across a young strong-willed woman named Alma played by played by Vicky Kripes Kripes I have no idea who soon becomes a fixture in his life as his muse and lover once controlled and planned he finds his carefully tailored life disrupted by love did anybody else read that and think it's just nine like the movie the musical that Rob Marshall made with Daniel Day-Lewis a couple years ago nine oh I didn't even think of that that is smart (laughs) both of them are set i think in the same era daniel day lewis plays a director in that movie who is undone by the women in his life this sounds very very similar my god i haven't thought of that movie nobody's thought about nine and you really don't need to um because i i mean i have a soft spot for parts of nine um i think some of the music's good but that adaptation was a disaster in wait a minute in which in which case phantom thread is basically a uh, a dressmaking version of eight and a half exactly yes like that's that's what it's all it's all coming back so we should just all watch eight and a half and not watch any of these movies so like that that's that's the conclusion where do we fall on anderson as a director i you know i don't get the the blind admiration for him maybe i'm just i haven't watched the right movies i haven't seen magnolia i'm gonna throw that out there right now i did see inherent vice and I read the yeah. book Inherent Vice. I knew the book was always going to be difficult to adapt. The movie does about as good a job as it can with that. I mean, it was it was okay. I didn't love it. But I remember most people saying that that wasn't even good P.T. Anderson. Yeah, Inherent Vice. I was not in love with Inherent Vice. And I had also read the book. And I, I liked the book a lot better than, um, than whatever the hell Anderson was doing with it. Uh, I generally i actually am one of the few i guess cinephile people who did not like the master i still haven't seen that either i heard that that was a real hard sit it it's it i was bored by it and i am someone who loves all of the craziness around scientology 
And I was sitting there going like, how have you made this boring? This is supposed to be insane and this is just dull. It was overlong, you know, you've got some good performances in it and everything, but I, I honestly think that it was actually Anderson as a director that was, that screwed it over. Uh, I like There Will Be Blood, which is the last film I think he made with Dylan. I haven't seen so that one that, either. Oh my God. <laughs> there's, <laughs> so there's some, there's some hope in that, I guess, that I really, that, um, you know, this is Day-Lewis working with him again, and they seem to pair very well together. I, I don't know. Anderson can be, Anderson seems to be a very um, problematic director, and it, maybe he's just one of those directors that you either love and you just think he's the greatest thing ever, or you can't get into him because thinking about it i think there will be blood is really the only of the only one of his films that i truly like uh that i think is is worthy of all of the accolades it received well this is a christmas day release and if history is anything to go off of nothing that has been released on christmas has won best picture la la land we thought was going to break the trend and it didn't so i don't think we'll see this in i mean but then again the Academy loves Anderson. I think they've nominated every single thing that he's he's done. And they love Daniel Day-Lewis. And they love Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. So I, I think I, this will definitely get nominated. The question is, will it win? And if Daniel Day-Lewis really connects with, with people, you know, it might, it might happen. Uh, especially, you know, if you have something like Call Me By Your Name splitting the vote and lead. You know, other things just don't really connect with the mass, with the Academy at large. So Christmas Day, most of you can see it. Moving on to some trailer talk. We got, uh, let's let's get the, the unnecessary, it's not going to go anywhere other than TV thing out of the way. They released a new trailer for The Punisher on Netflix. I have never had more people complain about a, a trailer so much that ended with, but I'm going to watch it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I am one of those people that says I had issues, but I'm going to end up watching it anyway, mostly because of personal bias. Why does why does Marvel have to get people I appreciate? We watched the trailer. This is based off of the the Marvel comic about uh, a person who a uh, mass or uh, unmasked vigilante um, trying to avenge his wife and murder children. You might recall the Thomas Jane film from I think 2004. They also did uh, another one directed by Lexi Alexander. The movies have not done well. People really like this version of The Punisher, played by John Bernthal, Captain Sexy of the Sexy Brigade, as I call him. But a lot of people have said that essentially it's just white guy kills a lot of people while trying to avenge a woman in a refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> what do we all feel about this? Because that's really kind of the takeaway from the trailer. <laughs> it's, it feels like it's very connecting with middle America type of thing. Well, I, in, jumping in, I aside from the adorableness and my shameless schoolgirl crush on Charlie Cox, um, Bernthal's Punisher was probably my favorite, favorite part of Daredevil, part, Daredevil season two. Just the only season um, I watched? <laughs> yeah. And that, it was not, in my mind, it was not their strongest. I mean, I loved Daredevil season one, but two was very hot and cold, and I think the hot parts of it were, you know, hot in all of its forms. <laughs> <laughs> were Bernthal's Punisher stuff. And I think, I mean, and speaking of not having watched it since kind of the first run, I thought Bernthal's Punisher was, I thought his portrayal was incredible. I felt he was sympathetic. I mean, despite everything he was doing, I think you could see, just, 
he picked up on the layers of that character, which, and it's been a long time since I've seen the movies, so I can't speak to those, but I just, I felt like he gave a flawless performance with it. Having recently watched the, the Thomas Jane version, which I remember liking um, when it came out, I don't know how comic book people felt about it because I didn't hang out with them. I mean, Thomas Jane's Punisher was just kind of blah, mostly because Thomas Jane as an actor is kind of blah. And then I think Ray Stevenson played him in Punisher Warzone, and that movie was See, just. I've seen Ray Stevenson, but it's yeah, it's been so long. Yeah, and that movie was just so garish and in your face and hyper violent that I don't really think you notice performance here. I think we actually want to inject story, which is great. But I mean, it is hard to considering this. This was supposed to get a big push at New York Comic Con, and then the Las Vegas um, shooting happened, and then they pushed it back. And there was talk that they were going to push the release back. And I think it's it's coming out the seventeenth of November now, which I had always heard that it was going to be a November fourteenth or seventeenth release. But how do we feel about watching again? I mean. John Bernthal's great, and he's hot as hell, but white guy <laughs> going off to shoot things in the name of women and children. <laughs> I just, I can't reconcile with what we have to deal with, like, as a country nowadays. Like, that's the thing. I, I want to watch it, but it feels just so problematic to me. Maybe I'm in the minority. It's, I, I agree. It's difficult to watch that kind of thing now, and it just when you guys are talking about it, I'm like, I have less than negative interest in most of the Marvel films. See, or most of the I never TV have shows. interest in Marvel anything, and I swear Hollywood is trying to convince me to, like, I think they're subliminally messaging me, because this I've, is the- I've drank the Kool-Aid. I, exactly. I, I have it. to watch this shit now. <laughs> But, but I was also just thinking about the fact that uh, we've got um, Eli Roth's remake of Death Wish. Oh, God. It's going to be coming out. You know, which is, it's, it's its own form of extreme, obviously. But yeah, having these, at a time when we've got vigilante white men going out and actually killing people. Because they, they think of themselves in some way as these these you know, revenge-driven heroes. And then to turn around and be like, we're going to make TV shows and movies about vigilante white men going out and killing people, but it's for a good purpose, right? It is, you do kind of begin to go like, can we not for a little while? You know, maybe that this is something that we don't need to be representing as heroic at this moment because we're having real-life problems with this sort of thing. Yep, see, that's that's my, what my conscience is telling me to say. But then, like the skanky part of Kristen is saying just watch it anyway um so yeah I mean I'm, I'm gonna watch it it comes out the 17th in case you all want to see it I'll be there I hate myself the other teaser that came out I Tanya released about a 50 second teaser spot for the movie um that pretty much just showed Margot Robbie smoking saying some stuff we got brief glimpses of Allison Janney as her mom and Sebastian Stan playing Tanya Harding's ex-husband the fabulously named Jeff Galuli I am so excited for this movie I know Craig Gillespie as a director is kind of hit and miss I I'm one of the few people I remember liking Lars and the Real Girl when it came out but I have not seen it since it came out and I do have a soft spot for his remake of Fright Night Mostly because it has Colin Farrell in it. But other than that, I mean, he's never really been uh, a director of note. But this movie's getting a lot of praise. There is confusion about whether this is a comedy or not. And from the trailer, are we all getting comedy vibes? A little bit, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like dark comedy. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, 
that's it, it looks like one of those films that is going to kind of mine some of the comedic aspects of it because it is very that that whole thing was very extreme and bizarre and wild and nasty and so i i you almost have to treat it comedically in, at some level because otherwise it's not going to be it's not going to be interesting yeah the comparison the comparison that i had heard was to die for which if that's the comparison you're making then oh my gosh i'm so excited because to die for is probably one of my favorite black comedies and it you know nicole kim got a lot of attention for it i'm a huge tanya harding fan i I, i've had a sick fascination with this story since i heard about it i can't even tell you when i first heard about it but i've i've always i've always been team tanya okay she's an underdog (laughs) she got railroaded watch the price of gold the uh, espn 30 for 30 it's a great movie um and Tanya Harding is is still a delightful presence now as an older, hopefully wiser woman. But yeah, I, I mean, there's been a lot of people saying, oh, you know, that this is a story that shouldn't be told with any type of comedy in it because a woman was hobbled. And, and well, I, she came back to win this, what, the silver. Exactly, you know? yeah. Nancy's <laughs> fine, okay? Yeah, Nancy's all right. She stole another man's husband after the fact, okay? I mean, not to throw a woman under the bus, but, you know... Nancy wasn't perfect either, but but I mean, <laughs> but that does not mean no, no, of course not, of course not, no. But I th- I think I think if anything, like the Tanya Harding story coming out now is really interesting because when it happened, it was really about pitting the right kind of woman versus against against the wrong kind of woman because Nancy Kerrigan was considered upper middle class, blue collar, beautiful, perfect. You know, she looked like the definition of a figure skater. Tanya Harding was white trash and she wasn't pretty and she was even though she was technically a better skater, she was poor. She dressed like she had crappy costumes and that ended up hurting her in the long run. So I think it's interesting especially now in light of like believing women and allegations of of stuff. I mean to really look at that story as this concept of what makes a woman worth believing you know does it does it matter what she says or does it matter that what she's saying and how she looks like i'm really interested to see the discussions that come out from this movie Mm -hmm. and i think that that goes um wide sometime in january but it's going to get a december qualifying run again movies released in december commonly have not won best picture any significant awards but maybe this year will be different team tanya forever so let's get into um, some some great listener questions that we got uh, as we finish out the news segment. Um, this one comes from at hello it's Pauzo. I think it, please tell me if I'm saying your Twitter name wrong um, on Twitter. She gave us um, what I commonly call the fuck Mary kill trifecta, where we have to choose between our okay. loves. And somebody has been following my Twitter feed <laughs> because the first one she gave us was Oscar Isaac, Army Hammer, and Riz Ahmed. So I'm going to give this to Lauren first to answer because everybody will probably know my answer. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid that I see. I hate these kinds of things because usually it comes down to like three people that I actually quite enjoy. That's why it's fun. And we so, torture you with. Them. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm going to say fuck Oscar Isaac, Mary Army Hammer, and I'm afraid to kill Riz okay. because that's that's my lauren is the exact same as me so i don't even need to share mine like yeah that makes three of us because that was going to be my answer too (laughs) we're sorry riz ahmed um i I mean 
I didn't want to make that decision. <laughs> See, I will say I don't get the Riz Ahmed thing. He does not do it for me. I have a very specific type. If you've ever asked me for, for my list of celebrity husbands, I have a ten, I have top 10 list. It's a very specific type of person. And Riz Ahmed's not on it. I'm sorry. Um, and he's playing Hamlet, too, for Netflix, which just kind of makes me get all territorial because Oscar Isaac's Hamlet. God damn it. Nobody else can Step ever back, play man. the bard. Step back. <laughs> Nobody can ever play Hamlet again. It's been done. Okay, it's finished. <laughs> Uh, the next one that uh, we received was, unfortunately, Karen's not here. Because I know exactly how she would have answered. Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Tom Hardy. Kimberly, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, fuck Tom Hardy. Marry Tom Hanks. Kill Tom Cruise. Oh, I, I'm going with Kim. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're sorry, Karen. Karen can give, <laughs> we'll, we'll have Karen give hers when she comes back because I'm pretty sure she would have, she would have supported her Tom Cruise. Um, mm-hmm. And the next one is our Chris trio. It's Chris Pratt, Chris Pine, Chris Hemsworth. Uh, I guess I'll go first. Um, I would say mm, Mary Pine, fuck Hemsworth, kill Pratt. Ditto. Same here. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Hey, we are all in agreement. This is amazing. <laughs> So yes, feel free to send us more suggestions and we will uh, read them on air. Uh, Our next question is actually going to lead us into our movie reviews discussion. Um, This comes from at Nick B-Man. They wanted to have us give our take on Raw. Now I feel bad because I didn't have time to watch Raw, but I know Lauren has seen it. And I watched it this morning. Okay, and Kimberly, I'm the only idiot that didn't see it. Um, I have heard really good things, but I have also heard that it is incredibly difficult to sit through. Why don't you guys uh, give us your thoughts on it? Uh, it's it's yeah, it's difficult to sit through. Um, I I finally watched it because every, every Halloween, like I do a bunch of horror films, and uh, I finally watched it as as a result of that because I, you know, it's it's a directed by a woman. It's uh, the two leads are female. You know, it's a very uh, it's been kind of touted as this weird feminist coming of age cannibal horror movie and it's it is it yes it is very difficult to watch it's very gross like there's a there's a lot of throwing up and eating brains and fingers and all kinds of things but it's also a very um intense and powerful film and makes you feel really really sorry for some you know veterinary students mm-hmm. who become cannibals um i will say i have n- i have not seen many horror films that have physically affected me and this w- there were parts where i just felt nauseous yeah. i thought it was incredibly well shot and the relationship without going into too too much between the sisters i thought was stunningly depicted i thought those two did a great job really almost it, you know not the you know more graphic elements obviously but the I connected to some of that with you know own personal relationships just how they handled the story how they you know depicted that I thought it was really really a solid film yeah it's very well done it's very atmospheric Mm -hmm. also like the the whole the veterinary school where these two sisters uh, attend um attend college is I had, a, I had a difficult time, and I think that the film intends this, uh, I had a difficult time figuring out how it was laid out, like where the dormitories were in relationship to the hospitals where they were going to in relationship to, you know, basically these floors that are almost like slaughterhouses, right. but where they're actually learning to, you know, work on animals. And it 
it it gave this just impression of coldness and grossness and this very close relationship to pieces of dead bodies pieces of animals that is like all a part of the way that these these two sisters which is you know this is a beautiful family story of love and togetherness and and eating people (laughs) and but it is about these two sisters and it's interesting like all the pushing and pulling the antagonism that there is between them and the very powerful love that's between them is kind of all catalyzed within this very bizarre mise-en-scene this very bizarre school the the uh the way that it's all photographed it's a really interesting film not not for the faint of heart certainly yeah i i'm i'm hoping to get to it i know it's it's on netflix now so i have no excuse but let's get into uh some reviews not a whole lot of big movies out if you saw this weekend was kind of a, a wasteland between a geostorm and the snowman a couple other things so i figured we'd do a grab bag kind of talking about some movies um, that we had seen, new releases that we thought uh, might be uh, interesting. So we have a couple, so we won't spend too much time on them. I saw Happy Death Day, which I thought was going to suck, and it was actually very fun. It's a horror movie that does not take itself too seriously, which I thought was necessary because so many horror movies nowadays are just so overwrought. I thought the lead actress was really charming, and it doesn't um, overstay its welcome, which I thought was really, really great. So go see Happy Death Day if you haven't seen it. I also wanted to bring up a movie that I despised. I saw Breathe the other day. (laughs) Breathe is the delightful story of Andrew Garfield playing a polio patient who learns to live his life despite the supposed odds. I have written extensively about why I hate disabled movies about disabled people. I am a disabled person, so I call them disabled movies. I don't care. Please don't send me another tweet saying that I mislabel the genre. But I I hate these movies. They're all based on a true story so that you can't talk shit about them because essentially it's based on someone's life. Well, that's why they do that. And it's produced by the real, the, the son of the real subjects. And I'm assuming that nothing bad ever happened except polio because these two leads never have a, an argument. It's a beautifully shot film. Andy Serkis obviously watched a lot of like 1940s melodrama. It's beautifully filmed, beautifully costumed, but it's so hard for me to get over how reductive it looks at disabilities. I know it's set in the 19, it's set throughout like starting in the, the the 40s and then I think it ends in the early 80s. So before the ADA, I get all that. But it's never Andrew Garfield's story. It's Claire Foy's story as his wife. And we're never given anything about Andrew Garfield other than like how difficult it is to be disabled. Everything is like a wink and a smile and a self-deprecating joke at how, oh, I'm in a wheelchair. It's just Every stereotype that I've ever brought up about Disabled Movies 101 is in this movie. I did not like it. Oh, and by the way, apparently this is another movie that's going to trot out that the only agency we have as people is in deciding when we're going to die. Which, if you've seen me before you, we die really well, apparently. We can all afford Swiss chateaus and private nurses, and um, (laughs) we can kill ourselves really easily on the cheap, apparently. I fucking hate these movies so much. And I have, like, one more to see this year. Uh, Wonder, which, oh my god, I'm prepping to just be so mad at myself. The only other movie that I know more than one of us saw is Only the Brave, which you saw Kimberly as well. I did, yep. So... I went and saw this because I love Josh Brolin, Um, so I had really no excuse, and I didn't care for it. 
Um, I, I have a friend who who's dating or whose husband is a firefighter and she had seen the trailer and I guess they both laughed at how stupid it looked and I had to ask her you know like okay please explain some of these things to me I thought this was a really America fuck yeah type of movie that's aiming for like if you like Lone Survivor you're really gonna like this um this is being touted as the perfect storm only with fire and I didn't necessarily get that because you spend an inordinate amount of time going through differing tones. This is a movie that is about firefighters and how serious firefighting work is, and then has a weird-ass extended running plot line smack in the middle of the movie about Taylor Kitsch and Miles Teller raising a child <laughs> for some reason that's supposed yeah. to be supposed to be really funny because Taylor Kitsch makes the declaration that children are hard. All the women are just either sluts or bitches or stand-by-your-man types. The exception being Jennifer Conley, who I, I really enjoyed, if only because she does not put up with any of the shit that is, like, thrown out at her in this movie. There is a scene where she is arguing with Josh Brolin where I was just like, you get it, girl, because <laughs> you need to tell him what time it is. And it's really hard not to just see, like, Josh Brolin talking about being a drunk and being, like, throwing tables and just being like, it's Josh Brolin on a Tuesday. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know way too much about Josh Brolin's personal life. So I didn't care for it. It wasn't the worst thing I've seen, but I thought for a movie that seemed so fascinating and it was about honoring these people that had given their life, I felt they deserved a better movie. Um, Kimberly, what, what did you think about it? I... I reviewed it fairly well, but three, I think three paragraphs of my review were on Jennifer Connelly. I thought yeah. she did a <laughs> stunning job, and I thought for somebody who has played the supportive wife so many times in her career, I thought she was doing some nice tweaks kind of on that character. I mean, starting from that first scene where she calls him out for saying something dickish the night before. And she, you know, she gets him on the ropes and it's like, well, you know, it's, well, and he, he has to sit there and go, well, you, you're smarter than me and you argue better than me. And I, she did such great work and I thought it was throughout the entire film. I had, I, you know, knowing the story, that ending for me was like a specter coming up towards, so I think that was a hard kind of tonal thing for me I thought it's I, I reviewed it fairly well I didn't you know critique it too too hard Connolly was the best part I thought Miles Miles Teller played weird for me in that and I'm not I couldn't put a finger on why I felt like he hit his stride towards the end Miles Teller plays a meth addict for all of about 10 seconds and then supposedly he got clean really quickly I, I think it was him as the meth addict. I just, he felt miscast early in the film for me. Yeah. And I wasn't, you know, it just didn't fit. And, but Jennifer Connelly, and I, I was, I really liked James Badgedale in that too. He James Badgedale is always good. He's always good in He everything. was a name I wasn't familiar with. So oh, okay. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to catch more of your work now. Yeah, he's really good. He, he's one of the high points of, like, I think Iron Man 3. He was good in Flight. He's in. He's usually in crappy movies, but he's really good in them. He was good in Shame, too, although Shame is just great to watch for all the naked fassy. But, <laughs> but Kimberly, what other <laughs> movies do you want to throw out that you got to see this week? Oh, speaking of fassy, um, <laughs> the Snowman. Ha <laughs> ha. How bad was it? 10, 10 to 15% of the movie wasn't shot. Oh, dear God, and it felt like that. 
what s- really surprised me was the the editing was just terrible. There, you know, there was one point thinking of just a specific sequence, Fassbender's, you know, alcoholic cop, you know, some of these movies, is there really any other kind, is, pa- you know, is passed out on a street corner in the next scene, he's, you know, speaking with the female lead in a cafe. They j- it felt like, to me, they missed, like, huge chunks. I mean, whether it was transitions or something. And then, but looking at what stunned me was Thelma, Sh- and I'm going to butcher it. Thelma Schoonmaker. Schoonmaker, yeah, yeah. Is the editor credited on it? Legendary editor. Legendary. Always so if she couldn't save this movie, I want to know what the hell it looked like when she got it. According to Tomas <laughs> Alfredson, if you had seen the movie a year ago, much like uh, Josh Trank when he did Fantastic Four, um, according to Tomas Alfredson, this movie would have been great if he had been allowed to make what he wanted. Whether that's true, we'll never know. So unfortunately, the Harry Hole film franchise... <laughs> We'll um, <laughs> never, never again see the light of day. And um, I, I just, I feel so bad for Fassbender because he's another one I feel is good. He does, but he just keeps picking. I mean, maybe he's like Ryan Reynolds five years ago, just keeps picking shit. He films. keeps trying to make a franchise happen. Like, it, it seems like he really wants a sweet franchise to retire on. And he's just Assassin's picking bad ones. Assassin's Creed one. should have never been made. <gasps> I, I, I give Assassin's Creed a very cursory pass. Not for uh-huh. Fassy, but for Jeremy Irons, because okay, I love him true. so much. So yeah, you also saw Goodbye Christopher Robin, which I'm actually going to miss the press screening for to go see Riff Tracks Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> you know, might be partially shamelessly gushing, because uh, Donald Gleason is one of my absolute favorites. But just beautiful movie everything about it i was pretty much sobbing from about halfway through it's kind of one of those rush out and go hug your dad kelly mcdonald is always good she's i've never seen her put a foot wrong in a performance the cinematography story everything i thought the pacing was a little iffy towards the beginning but you know about the 15 minute mark it pretty much righted itself i i heard margot robbie's just playing radha mitchell in uh finding neverland she's kind of like the annoying wife i yeah her character was terrible and that was probably one of the i i mean not being too familiar with that story i don't know if they could have tweaked that at all i did not margot robbie was not my good takeaway from the film at all but it's just with the rest of it. I mean, it, right now for me, it's a contender for my top 10 for the year. Interesting. Lauren, any movies you want to talk good, bad, ill? I, I mean, I haven't really seen tons of new films this week, unfortunately. I did get to um, do some stuff for the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival during this past weekend. And so I got to see a couple of interesting but not great more recent horror films. One of them is is a film called Hagazusa, which is kind of being touted as the German version of The Witch. Um, Robert Eggers' film from uh, last year, God. And it is very much a German version of The Witch. Like it's it's about a, a young woman who is sort of living on the outskirts of this Alpine village in, I believe it's supposed to be the 13th or 14th century and she's accused of being a witch it's very slow it's endless and then like all hell breaks loose in the final act and it's the most confusing final act i have ever seen um it's one of those like she she eats she eats hallucinogenic toadstools and then all kinds of weird shit begins happening and there's 
there's death and destruction and people erupting into flames. And I was sitting there going like, I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this movie. Uh, so unfortunately, you know, it, it was it was an interesting idea, but it never really quite panned out. The other film that I saw is a movie called Rift, which it, which is actually getting a lot of good response. It's an Icelandic film, an Icelandic horror film um, about two two men who have gone through a recent breakup together and one of them goes off to his parents uh, isolated cabin in somewhere in the north of Iceland which is you know a perfect place to go when you're depressed and he he ends up calling up his his former lover who and saying that he's not alone and so his lover thinking that oh my god this there's something going wrong with him goes up north and it, it becomes this kind of them dealing with the death of their relationship, which is be which is treated almost like the supernatural force between the two of them, which is a very interesting concept. But again, I I feel like it's one of those films that it has a lot of interesting stuff behind it, but it never quite pans out. They don't follow through on anything, and I was I was disappointed in it because a number of people that I've I've spoken with who have seen this film really liked it and thought it was a really interesting kind of use of horror uh, to explore this this destruction of this relationship but um yeah it didn't didn't pan out for me unfortunately well that brings us into uh our last section where we talk about since halloween is uh, next week and we will actually be recording um probably the day before halloween it'll come out after halloween let's talk about very briefly some of our favorite halloween movies now because karen could not be here she sent us uh, her recommendation which is the 1955 french film diabolique which i would second um uh, it's a fantastic murder yeah. mystery with a, a predominantly female cast which is great um some ones that i know i will be checking out uh usually i of course we are all hocus pocus fans here yeah. yep so we will be watching that um i also say pet cemetery if you're looking for something new and you want to see actual like positive depictions of disability that make me happy go watch curse of chucky and cult of chucky do not ask me how Don Mancini seemingly knows how to present disabled people in a way that is both positive and unique, but go watch both of them, because A, they're really good movies, and B, they actually have disabled people in a fictional setting, not based on a true story, One, a female who actually is, like, having sex with people. Like, I'm just amazed and how positive all of this is. I've never seen this. So yeah, those are those are some of my recommendations and, and Adam's Family Values, if only so that you can watch it and imagine what Oscar Isaac would look like as Gomez and it's the sexiest thing ever. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some of my recommends. I got more, but yeah, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, Lauren, what about you? What are your Halloween staples? Uh, well, of course, Hocus Pocus, which I actually just got to see uh, two days ago with some Yay! friends, so that was great fun. Hocus Pocus is just always it's a go-to Halloween movie the other one for me is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein yes. that's one of my favorite horror films like my my poor father decided to show it to me for the first time when I was like five years old which was a terrible idea because Dracula scared the hell out of me <laughs> and I would not sleep in my room for days afterwards so but I love it now and it's one of my favorites the other one for me is The Haunting yeah uh, the Robert Rubber Wise, Robert Wise yeah. film yes. first of all I love the book the book is, if possible, more scary than the film, but the film really just does the, the the ghostly presence and the supernatural so well and does it with that psychological edge that you're never really quite sure 
is this real? Is it not? Is this a ghost or ghosts? Is this, you know, there, there are so many wonderful set pieces and uh, it always scares me and I've seen it like 15 times. Uh, so those are the two that are like big, big, big Halloween films for me. Kim, what about you? Well, I'm going to, so I've just, just watched Hocus Pocus, I think two days ago for myself as well. So yeah. that's always one. And I hadn't thought of this film, but Lauren, you reminded me with Abbott and Costello. I'm going to shout out another one of their horror, or Hold That Ghost. Yes! Is one of, I, I put that, I think, as number one on a Halloween list I did a few weeks ago. Just the cast that they had in there and is just, it's one of my all-time favorites. And then I'm going to shout out a little Netflix, I believe it's an Irish little indie horror movie, The Canal. And it is starring the always delightful Rupert Evans. And he is a film archivist who moves essentially into a murder house. And then his life just starts spiraling out of control. One of the few really low-budget contemporary ones that's really kind of creeped me out in places. And he gives such a stellar performance as his life starts to kind of crumble down around him. It's one I just watched a few days ago and forgot how much I liked it. Since you guys got to throw out a classic one, I have to chill for House on Haunted Hill. The Vincent yep. Price uh, version. Yeah. It's it's campy, but it's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> and I would recommend watching maybe about the first like 25, 30 minutes of the remake with Jeffrey Rush, if only because he's really good at emulating Vincent Price. <laughs> the rest of the movie is not great, but yeah. So we do have an iTunes review because we uh, love to support our, our the fans who decide to actually say nice things about us on the internet. This comes from JWGH. Of course, it's five stars. They write, I've enjoyed hearing Kristen Lopez on other podcasts. Aww. I got fired from one of them, so hopefully you weren't a fan of that one. So I was excited to see that she and three other film critics, all women, started a new podcast. The discussions are engaging and energetic, the opinions are never sugar-coated, and the issues discussed range from the idiosyncratic to important. So yes, we can talk about the Gotham Awards and play Fuck, Mary Kill games. Um, in just a few episodes, this has become one of my favorite film podcasts. Thank you guys so much. We've gotten two iTunes reviews already, and I am, I'm verklempt. So very, thank you guys so much. Um, of course, you can contact us a multitude of ways. You can contact the podcast via Facebook. That's facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. We're also on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod. We are on iTunes, of course. Just search Citizen Dame. You can leave us a rating and review. We recommend you do so that people will actually uh, learn about the podcast. iTunes reviews are the best way. We're also available to listen to at citizendame.podbean.com. We're also on Stitcher Radio. I think that's that's all of where you can actually get the podcast um as for me you can follow me on twitter at journeys underscore film not to show for myself but i am raising money to attend afi fest travel is expensive so if you would like to uh learn more about my my fundraising uh or even donate of course that would be fantastic you can go to gofundme.com slash send Kristen to afi lauren where can people find you on the internet I can find me at, at LH Business, that's I-Z-N-E-S-S, on Twitter. And then I'm also on my WordPress blog at Suddenly a Shot Rang Out. And Kimberly? 
I am on Twitter at kpierce624, and then you can find my writing at Geek Girl Authority. And if you want to tell Karen that we all killed Tom Cruise uh, on this episode, you can uh, find her on Twitter at Karen M. Peterson. What's what's happening this week? Um, I know I'm going to see SuburbCon finally tomorrow, actually, and Killing of a Sacred Deer. What do what do you guys all have on tap for screenings uh, or movies this week? I am at Itania tomorrow. Suburbicon and Thor are the biggies for me. Okay, Lauren? Because I am behind everybody else. I think I'm finally going to get to go see Blade Runner. Okay, good thought speed. So after all of that, yeah. So yeah, uh, we'll of course be talking about all of that in some form uh, on the next episode. So as always, this is These Are the Citizen Dames, and we'll see you next time.